Ready? I'm ready. Ready? All right. Welcome to the Law of the Gosh podcast. I'm here with an activist from Libya. He was in Libya during the Arab Spring and the fall of Gaddafi, and he's here to tell me more about himself and Libya. I'm here with Bilal. Thank you for coming on, Bilal. Thank you, Lalo, for having me. It's a pleasure. And no problem, man. So I want to hear a lot from you so let's start like way at the beginning tell me about where you were born your upbringing let's start from there yeah i was born in benghazi i was born in libya i was born in the 90s so i was born during the time where there's uh international sanctions on libya it's a result of Gaddafi's actions uh they they accused him of bringing down a plane uh on lockerbie scotland and that's when uh, Americans decided uh, to set like international sanctions on the on the Gaddafi regime. And w- when I grew up, like early on, I noticed immediately that there was something different about my family in Libya. That um, I grew up with an uncle who was a mo- part of the Muslim Brotherhood. And when I, as soon as I grew up, he was out of the country. And when I was six years old, and that put a target on our back as if as his as his family like his the when the Gaddafi regimes in libya or arab majority countries when they want to punish you they don't they don't just punish you they, they also punish your 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 lot of relatives your family so uh, there was an extra pressure where like i thought that there was a political witch hunt against my family can I ask you there how um how would they punish like you you and your extended family not you specifically but you're saying in general in the country like how first of all how, how what methods would they use to punish? You wouldn't be able to uh, get any uh, high positions in the government like that's one of the first thing you do and you get um, I remember like um, the police coming to our house and questioning us like m- not me but my family multiple times about whereabouts my uncle and it wasn't even a conspiracy that we also heard like our phone being monitored so it's it wasn't like it was a common thing it was a security state it was a small country and Gaddafi was crushing down on his opposition both Islamist and secular opposition and my I immediately noticed that my family was part of the not the opposition but was part not the favorable families by the regime and the city i was in benghazi was not favored by the regime itself um so you know what you said there about uh libya being rather small country i was kind of surprised when i was looking up some research on on libya that when Gaddafi took power there was only about two million people in the country i think this is the 1960s and even today there's only six million and a half or something uh a million people in in uh in Libya. That's a, that's a that's a pretty small country. And I say this even from Chile, where we're like seventeen million people. So uh, Libya is uh, uh I think one one seventieth in in the population and worldwide, and the seventeenth largest country in the world. Like now, maybe sixteenth after the Sudan's split. 
But yeah, it's a very large country with a very, very small population and a huge amount of oil reserves. So it's very perfect like for economic growth, for economic opportunity, like a great location. As you know now with the international migrant crisis, it's close to Europe, it's in Africa. So it, it's, a, it's a gateway to Europe and to Africa itself. So it can be a, tra- a gate, like as as you can see it now, and it has a lot of opportunities, both economically and socially, because it's it's not a very diverse country. Although there is a little bit of diversity, but yeah, it's a very like ready to be rich country. But unfortunately, it has other plagues. In it. So Libya is kind of a good example of a place that really. Ha- has every opportunity to grow and have a, a wealthy population and because mm-hmm. like all the conditions are there you have there's natural resources there's sea there there's you know proximity to, to europe there's a relatively small population it's just governmental organization that's lacking really exactly and yeah. Like I'll start. I'll give you a short history of Libya. Libya was in the last maybe uh, up until 1900. It was occupied by the Ottomans, Turkey, mm-hmm. and uh, it was under the Ottoman uh, Caliphate, the Islamic Ottoman Caliphate, and it was very, very neglected under that Caliphate. Libyans has uh, have uh, back then. It wasn't just Libya. It was three states, but. Like Libyans in general was were revolting against uh, the Turks, and there was a lot of uh, like uh, how can I say it? Um, anger towards the Turks, especially when when the Italians came to Libya and Libyans signaled to Turkey like, "Hey, you're supposed to defend us. We're part of the Ottoman Empire," and there was little resistance from Turkey to the Italian occupation, and. As you know, uh, Italy occupied Libya, and uh, and unfortunately, in 1911, the Italians came to Libya, and that was there was like a resistance, and maybe there was like a little bit of history between the two countries. So there was a not a welcoming uh, feel, but people in the big cities were were okay with the Italians because they were really pissed off with the with the Turks, and but in 1920. It kind of went really unfortunate because Italy itself became a fascist state, and it was under Mussolini. So that hasn't had like reflected really badly on occupation on Libya, and there was a, a pretty big difference after the fascism. And there isn't even um, massacres. There's even uh, detention camps, and uh, yeah, it was like really bad back then. So then came World War II, and Italy was kicked out of Libya, and Britain took over. That's when, I, I, like, even me studying law, that's when Libya actually started to show a little bit of uh, development. England brought, uh, even, like, uh, Supreme Court justices were, were British. They weren't Libyan, because Libya had no judges. All the, most of the school teachers were Brits, and most of the most of the government was run by rich officials and it wasn't like a it wasn't like a an occupation it was like an administrative uh, um, like 
it was like a most administrative stuff. It was there were they weren't like taking the country. So wait to but, describe what you're talking about, like um, so is there after well before World War Two, it was occupied under yeah a very Italy. vicious it, it, Italian, Italian rule, fascist, but then after, yeah, it's fascist, fascist yeah, rule, it's, it's, um, and then there was an uprising, yeah. partly led by uh, Omar. Mukhtar, right? it's, it's not like the. Uh, it's not the. It's, this is a historical story that Gaddafi chose to tell about Libya. It's not that uh, Omar Mukhtar actually that. Oh, really? Any he he did lead a resistance and it was very strong, but he 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 was captured and he was killed. And there is a little bit of controversy because Omar Mukhtar is also fighting in the south, mm-hmm. in not in Libya in in Chad. He was fighting uh, France and he wasn't. And he was a little bit of an extremist. And that's my personal opinion, by the way. That's not even... But yeah, but there's like a, a historical document that Libyans weren't 100% with him because the, uh, the Sunusi family, which has later become the monarchy, were, were with negotiation with Italians and were with, with the occupation. And Omar Mukhtar was like, no, this is jihad. We need to fight them until death. And people were like, but we can't. Italy is a world power, and Libya is barely a, a village. Like what you were talking about, we're villagers. We're we're just farmers. We want to survive, and we want to make a deal. And there was a little bit of religious talk. He was a he was an imam. He was a a, a Quran teacher. So he's a, he's one of the original jihadis. Okay. Well, th- and then um, after World War Two, I think what you were getting at is that. Um... The, yeah, it was many the, countries it was were allies, under yeah. a- allied um, administration, and from exactly. what I understand, Libya was partly administrated by Britain and part by France. And but it was part, it was it was that wasn't colonization; they weren't in charge of the country, but there yes, was some exactly. administrative rule until and eventually even, they they yeah, left. They were trying to like uh, hype up the monarchy, which is uh, mm-hmm. which was uh, yeah was allied to the to the allies, which is yeah close to the allies, but they were. They were trying to set up a monarchy, and it was successful. In uh, 1951, Libya was a monarchy now, uh, a constitutional monarchy. And with the good and the bad, the monarchy was... Now it's like everybody is praising it, and they're thinking of the nice stuff. And But it was a really good time in Libya's history. But unfortunately, during the 1950s, there was another leader a very heavily influential leader called Jamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt. He was an Arabist leader and and he took over Egypt with a revolution and against a monarchy. And Libya and Egypt are historically very tied to each other, very close to each other. Um, like uh, Libyans won't <laughs> like to admit this, but Egypt is a big sister of Libya. Whatever Egypt does, Libyans usually follow and it's a have very like our culture is very heavily influenced. It's it's one of the most ancient civilization on earth. How can you not be influenced? So um, most of the Libyan teachers in the 1950s were Egyptian, and most of them were actually not most of them. Uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser, the Egyptian leader, actually you hired uh, a lot of uh, spies to go to Libya and to spread uh, both communism and Arabism uh, to substitute for monarchy, which is which was taken over in Libya, which was uh, successful in Libya a little bit. 
by the 1960s, uh, late 1960s, people were like even knew and had a feeling that a military coup, uh, like Egyptian style by an Arabist, was gonna come eventually. And they were like they were they were wanted it. They expected it because they wanted more out of their monarchy to fight Israel and to do more about Arabist issues. But the monarchy was not involved. Like as you know, monarchies. Do, like to be stable and like to be in power, not create a lot of hostilities internationally. So Gaddafi took over in 1969. It wasn't a bloody coup. It wasn't like a very heavily like bloody coup. It was just a, a coup, like a military quick coup. Um, not a lot of executions. People were happy. There were like mostly protests and support, not a lot of resentment against Gaddafi. And yeah, and I remember my father telling me, like, uh, that they were happy about the Gaddafi coup, that they they were, were waiting for a young leader, a military leader, to take over and to do exactly what Jamal Abdel Nasser did. And Jamal Abdel Nasser, the Egyptian leader, supported Gaddafi and backed him. So, mm -hmm. yeah, Gaddafi took power in in 1969. <laughs> Back then. Libya had, other than the monarchy, there were no strong parties or political infrastructure like, that can go against Gaddafi. So that's the only thing that helped him, that he took over the monarchy and then he was, he took over, over all over the country, like uh, the judicial, the, the parliament, there was no uh, opposition to him. So unfortunately, Gaddafi did... Um, in the beginning of the few, in the in the first few years, people praised him and he was good. In 1977, when he started the communist agenda and he started the Arabist, uh, his own vision of Arabism and communism, he that's when he started. There was a lot of hanging, human rights abuses, uh, discrimination against. He started a tribal war, like he he started like systematically destroying everything that can op uh, set an opposition to him. And unfortunately, by 1980s, the only opposition he had now was um, either um, like um, uh, secular, like um, secular, like uh, Libya, Libyans uh, descended who are living abroad or Islamists who are now becoming a part of the Muslim Brotherhood which came to Libya and in the 50s, but quietly grew in the 60s and 70s. But in the 80s, that's when the Muslim Brotherhood influenced a lot of Libyans, especially through Libyan students abroad in the United States and in Canada and other countries in the 60s and the, in the 80s, especially. Um, they brainwashed a lot of students, especially including my uncle, including like my relatives that I knew. In, in the United States, and yeah, they came back as an opposition to Gaddafi. Part of the, oh, some of them were armed, some of them were peaceful. My uncle was peaceful, and yeah, uh, that's when they started arresting them. Can I and, um uh, tell you like my my research and my reading of Gaddafi and see what you think? From what I could tell, like going through those those decades of like seventies, eighties, and nineties mm -hmm. of, of Gaddafi, it seems like he was the most bipolar leader I've ever seen. He experimented with pretty much every ideology there was from pan-Arabism exactly. to, to he, he, like he, um, 
he first experimented with being a very Islamic state, then a rather secular state. He became extremely socialist state, then a very capitalist state. It, he even made up his own political philosophy drawn out in, yeah. in the Green Book. It seems like he was all over the map when it comes to how to administrate a country. And there was many testimonies I could find of people in Libya or politicians outside of Libya saying that he was a very unstable person. There's... Even... even um not both his politics and even in person he he it's the most all over the map kind of uh political scheming i've ever seen of of a country during those decades is it am i pretty much right in in saying that there was a lot you of changes? are you are yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. this there was a lot of changes he like we in libya we got used to um not uh, in, in social or security nothing changes but politically things changed drastically every five ten years like mm -hmm. it was strange that had how Li libya transformed from a like a total like i remember it like myself i was born in 1990 and i remember it myself like how it was a total communist states where we had lines for food where we had like to buy food from line and and where there was like shortages and i i remember like there were fruits that we didn't have in libya until like i grew up later like like we didn't have bananas in Libya until like I was seven years old, or a lot of basic things like uh, when there was like a sank a lot of sanctions, international sanctions, we couldn't have any American goods or any international goods. So you can like we we didn't have a Pepsi Cola, for example. We we never saw it before. So it was strange for us. And Gaddafi was experimenting with a lot of things. Personally, I can tell you about him. His life was very eccentric. There is a lot of lies and there is a lot of rumors about his life. But I can confirm that like, people around him can say that he was a drug addict and he was a drug abuser, especially painkillers. And uh, like, uh, he wasn't under control with his drug habit. Mm -hmm. So that's something that can like, indicate you. Uh, and he had a really rough childhood. Like um, he was a Bedouin, no, a, a kind of nomadic tribe in he, Libya. He was a, he was a Bedouin, and mm -hmm. he worked when he was a young boy. He worked as a uh, as a sheep herder, and sometimes he would go his uh, as a young boy. Uh, this is a like legendary story about him that uh, like they would go and serve like during weddings or social events that he would like serve tea or to elders of other tribes, not his own tribe. And they would be like asking him about where, where he's from and his tribe. And they would mock him because he was like from a small tribe and he wasn't like a, a very educated person uh, from a, like a, it's like a senior family or whatever. But so he, he actually educated himself and he went to a bigger city and he started like to learn about philosophy, about uh, like history, about, he was a very well-educated, self-educated person. And his personal tutor, well, not personal tutor, like one of his most influential school teachers in Benghazi was an Egyptian. And that same person was also teaching my dad. And he was bringing my dad to his home, teaching him about pan-Arabism and, uh, and, uh, like, uh, uh, and socialism and, uh, yeah, and communism and, and uh, like, uh, history from like like a very narrow like Arabist point of view, um, 
yeah, a lot of anti-Israel stuff. And that same person was also Gaddafi's teacher. Yeah, so like, people understand the same pan- pan-Arabism. Uh, Gaddafi, also from what, I, from what I've read, that uh, Gaddafi very much admired Nasser, wanted to unite with Nasser to create uh, unification between the Arab states. This is different from, if you know, if people don't understand the difference, there was a lot of uh, competing philosophies about how the Middle East and the Muslim world should unite and, and exactly. by, by uniting be, become stronger and compete with the West. And there was a lot of mm-hmm. uh, dif- uh, differences as to what the group should be. So pan-Arabism was the idea that all Arabs uh, should exactly. unite. There was also, there's also uh, a pan-Islamic Arab ideology where all the Arabs who are Muslim should unite. And then there's just pan pan-Islamic uh, unification where all, the, all yeah. the, the Muslim countries unite. So this would include non-Arab states such as Iran and, and Pakistan and Indonesia and, and, and countries like that. So you would get a much more, you know, much more distant countries uh, uniting. But from what I understand, Qaddafi w- was uh, very much of the idea of pan-Arabism. Exactly. And mm-hmm. he, was, uh, he was a big supporter of that idea. But there's a lot of controversy about like exa- who's exactly Arab. Is Libya right. Arab? Because Libya is North African, and there is a lot of people who do, who speak actually like another language that's not Arab, and they the only the only connection they have to the rest of the Arab world, quote unquote, it, it's that they have the same religion, they share the religion, and even the religion is kind of different in Libya. It's not Libya is not as religious as Saudi Arabia, and as Saudi Arabia is not as religious as Iraq, for example. So there is a lot of differences. So like the the pan thing never worked and until Gaddafi gave up and he started the pan-African thing where he mm-hmm. tried to become the king of kings of Africa and unite all of Africa. And that's serious. Like he really went for it. Like everything in Libya was becoming more African and not Arab. Right. Um, can we go back to your uh backgrounds i, I want to hear more about your upbringing so uh, were you brought up in a religious family at all if so what religion or were they more secular what was your upbringing like no my upbringing was moderate i would say it wasn't like a secular i was i, I it wasn't really uh, it was religious but not like uh, oppressive or anything like that mm. it was more like um like you can think for yourself, but we are really. Hold on. Want to think? Can... But wait, like, wait, hold on. You said we are what? Like we're like uh, uh, like liberal. Like we can think for ourselves. Like mm-hmm. my father wasn't oppressive. Like uh, you have to think the same way I have to think. But we also knew that our family was leaning towards the Islamist side because of my uncle and the like. Back then, all of Libya had this idea that opposition to Gaddafi should be Islamist or 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 whatever, you know? Like, if you're against Gaddafi, that means you're an Islamist. So people couldn't tell the difference being against Gaddafi because the only people who were speaking up against Gaddafi or talking about him was the Islamist, you know? Mm-hmm. So people were like, okay, if you're against Gaddafi, that means you're an Islamist. But that's not true. Anyway, um, my family was uh, wasn't like oppressive, but I grew up in a like a religious um, like, environment, like you can say that. Um, I I became a lawyer 
and I uh, is like there's nothing interesting in the early years of my life except that when 2006 came, um, like the year before I got into law school, uh, Libya had saw as in 2006 have seen a demonstration in February February 11th against the cartoons that were drawn of, of, of Prophet Muhammad. And uh, in Benghazi, they burned the Italian uh, uh, consulate because they believed that uh, there was a minister in Italy uh, wore a T-shirt with a, with a cartoon on it. And that's why they burned the Italian embassy. But while they were burning the consulate, there were chants against Gaddafi as well. In 2006 and uh, in Benghazi there was a, a small like a growing sentiment that this is a revolution against Gaddafi not a, a, a protest against the cartoon anymore and within three days Gaddafi was able to suppress everything but it felt like this is the closest thing to a revolution that can happen which was on February 11th but to I'm sorry to jump back a little bit. Okay. Oh, also, you when that... you um when you jump back, can you? I, I mean, it's, you say there's not a lot of interesting things in your background, but I think almost anything would be interesting for. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna give you some some something of the '90s. Yeah. I I, 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 I would like to know also if you can include in there. How religious is the atmosphere around around the country? Because people have you know the, their prejudices about. You know, Muslim Muslim countries, and in the '90s, Libya. I, I'm not really sure, considering how erratic um, Gaddafi was, about what mm -hmm. really the country looked like, what was permissible. Uh, okay. Can, you yeah. know, can you just give me an idea of what daily life was like a little bit there? Okay. Mm -hmm. In in Libya, uh, before I uh, before I came uh, in the '70s, Libya was more like Iran and more like Egypt. It was uh, a secular state. It was it wasn't religious. Women didn't wear hijab. Hijab was really rare, and there wasn't much of a public, uh, like practicing religion. But in 1980s, that's when Saudi Arabia started to spread Wahhabism, and they started to spread religious, more religious idea. That's when most women in Libya started wearing hijab. By the time I grew up in the 90s, that's when 50/50 of women, like, or 60/40 of women, were wearing hijab. And the rest were not wearing hijab. By 2000, 2001, all of the women in Libya were wearing hijab. Hijab was the main thing. Like, it's it would be rare to see a woman not wearing hijab. So it was strange to grow up in a country that's that's regressing into religion as you can like as you grew up. Yeah, but yeah, the in the 90s Libya was more secular, uh, secular a little bit. But in the 2000s Libya was becoming more religious and ultra conservative. Was there any influence from Saudi Arabia to explain that 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 was happening? Yeah, the Wahhabi Wahhabist uh, mosques, Wahhabi Salafi imams, uh, uh, all that was influential by Saudi Arabia, uh, the mosques in Libya especially. And I can I can also blame Gaddafi for a little bit of that, which is in the 1980s he set, he he actually set up some people to go to afghanistan and to join fighting with bin laden and to join to join the mujahideen against the soviet union back then mm -hmm. 
not not because he was against the Soviet Union, but it was a way to get rid of his opposition to go to jihad. Like, hey, guys, you can go there. Like, you can fight there. In the 1990s, that's when they came back to Libya. And some of them were coming back. From, a lot of them were coming back from Afghanistan. And they were, like, prepared now to fight Gaddafi. And they gave him a really big battle. And it was a really long war. And it started in 1994. It ended in 1996. Gaddafi had used every imaginable weapon under him to bomb the, the mountains like, uh, like near Benghazi and Derna. And it was a big, big war. And I remember like one time in my house where like security dogs came and like looked through our things like in our house, like, like multiple times actually to see if we, have, we were hiding somebody in our in our house because they were looking everywhere for people who were hiding and they would call them terrorists that was the first time i ever heard like the word zindiq which is a terrorist in libya mm. yeah so i was six years old like back then but in 1996 um gaddafi had already put almost most of them in in jail like he put uh, he had a big jail called abu slim prison and in that jail, he had uh, Muslim Brotherhood, he had jihadi people, and he had secular, like, uh, like anti-Gaddafi people. Or, or people are just opposition, you know? Like, people, like, were going to jail for anything, like, with the family. He even held, like, people in prison for political charges for things they did to him while, while he was a kid. So he had a lot of enemies. But in 1996... Those people were in a prison that their human rights were being abused and they were asking for a fair trial and they were asking for like any, uh, any rights. And in 1996, they killed in the same prison, like they massacred 1,200 people within two hours. And in the following years, we started to hear about it. But what, what drove people crazy was uh, their families were trying to visit them and the Gaddafi regime told them they're alive. You can visit them anytime, but you can't see them, you know, because they're alive. You can leave things for them. You can leave whatever, but they're alive. Don't worry about it. Little by little, the following years, the story was coming out. Witnesses were confessing that this massacre took, took place and people were dead. And the Gaddafi government, after five years, they were telling people, like, one by one, like, hey, your, your son died of, of disease or whatever. So mm. the family of those people were protesting, like, regularly against, like, for, for justice to their kids, which is, like, the, one of the few things where you can see, like, a very peaceful protest asking for, for a trial. This, these two things coincided in 2011, where the families of the people who were massacred in 1996 the Muslim uh, their lawyer now has uh, has set up a case against um, the prison and there were protests for the anniversary for the like uh, the 2006 um, protests I told you about February 11 2006 protests and at the same time Tunisia and Egypt just had their war that just had their uh, revolution Arab Spring Revolution so this, these three things coincided in February in Libya, where like Gaddafi had imprisoned the lawyer for the uh, the Muslim families. The Arab Spring was coming, and the anniversary of the February seventeenth 
protest was taking over. That was like the perfect mix for Benghazi to start the revolution. And I was there back then. And it was one of the strangest things like you can see because we were living in a safe, secure suburb in Benghazi. And when I say safe and secure, Libya was one of the safest countries maybe in the world. Gaddafi had a secure state under him. The police were very strong. The government, the, uh, the army was very strong. So even though there is a lot of crime, by 2010, by 2011, Libya was as safe as it can get. And within the last few years, Gaddafi had set up connections with the United States and he gave up the nuclear program. A lot of people don't know that, that <laughs> when you say that a lot of, because uh, that was kind of my, um, my main subject when I was studying politics is nuclear proliferation. It's, a lot of people are very unaware of the fact that Gaddafi in Libya had a nuclear program. And it was, he gave it up uh, uh, after 9-11, uh, contacting Britain and the United States in exchange for the lifting of sanctions to have ex uh, trade with the rest of the world. Yeah. And it was lifted by the United States, their unilateral embargo in 2004. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I, I, I think to this day, most people are even aware that unaware that uh, Libya had a nuclear weapons program. Most Libyans didn't. don't know that in themselves. Like, Libyans themselves still question whether we had it for real or not. Was it whether, like, a Gaddafi threat? But we did. Like, yeah. Yeah. We had, no, they, they uranium. had uranium. The United States found the centrifuges, so, uh, the, you know, that he was using to make the lightweight uranium. uranium. Yeah. 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 Definitely had and it. Yeah. He had scientists from Pakistan. Yeah. It you know what? Like you know when he um when he when Gaddafi contacted Tony Blair, for Tony Blair to contact Bush to say they're willing to give up the nuclear program, mm -hmm. in exchange for lifting the sanctions, the, Tony Blair and George Bush, their reaction was, "What the hell? He, they have a nuclear program? <laughs> they didn't even know. Yeah. They didn't even know. That was the funniest part about it. They, it was a total shock to them. Yeah, and that was the first time they heard of it. And that's when Libyans themselves were shocked, like themselves, like." How could this be? We we have a nuclear program, but yeah, that's how Gaddafi spent his time and money. <laughs> so so after the lifting of those sanctions in two thousand four, and 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 the, and the money started coming in, did it improve the life of the people oh, of yeah. Libya or oh, yeah. just Gaddafi? Oh yeah, it improved, uh, and I can say like it improved Libya in, in general. Two thousand one, yeah, in two thousand one, things were improving tremendously in Libya. Uh, Gaddafi himself relaxed the, uh, like the political pressure on Libyans. There were more like TV, uh, newspapers, uh, TV channels, um, uh, plays were more critical of the situation in Libya. There was definitely more freedom and, and of course, a lot of uh, more money and uh, business in Libya and especially international companies were coming in and investments. And yeah, things were getting a lot better. But at the same time, I remember this being like very stark that that being poor in Libya in the 90s and being rich was not very different. But being poor in 2005 or 2006 was very different from being rich in 2005, 2006. There was like a, this new class that appeared in Libya, which wasn't there. Libya was mostly a socialist state. And it, this like this new class of rich people and like 
uh, fancy new homes, like uh, expensive cars. It was, you can see, and poor people were like, like very poor. Libya, like I grew up in Benghazi and I grew up in a neighborhood that's uh, mostly uh, an immigrant neighborhood from Africa. And uh, most of those immigrants are, are people who are like Libyans because they've been there for 20, 30 years now and they're still being called immigrants. So now they have like a second generation of Libyans who are not Libyans, even Syrians and Palestinians or whatever. And I grew up around that and they were like, you can see the desperation where like, I'm poor and I'm not getting out of this. Like, there's like no hope for me. So there's like this sense of uh, desperation in, in young people. And I saw it and I was remembering like, this is really bad because a person with no hope is very dangerous. I know exactly what you mean. I, I, this is something that it's for a lot of people, maybe in um, you know first world Western countries, kind of hard to understand. But uh, what what I summarize it as being is it's it's easier to be poor in a poor country than it is to be poor in a rich country. So, for example, it would be it's easier to be poor in Bolivia, where mm -hmm. something on, like close to the eighty percent of the population live below the poverty line because most things around you are made for poor exactly. people, right? They're, the prices are adjusted to them because they are the majority. Exactly. But if you lived in Japan and you were poor in a country where every, you know, everything's very expensive and most people have, have a decent income to be poor. There is very uh, complex. And what happens for example, in Japan, when a person loses their job, they commit suicide because they can't, exactly. they can't even feed their, their family. So it's in some, in some ways it's, it's much harder to be poor in Japan than it is to be poor in a poor country. So, and it was becoming increasingly impossible to become poor in Libya. Yeah, right, right. So, like, the, so there's there's um there's a downside to the improvements, uh, uh of all the business and capitalism coming into. And unfortunately, yeah. Gaddafi had set up a socialist state where there, I don't know, like a percentage, but it's up the seventy percent of people in the are working in the public sector. So most of the people are relying on government salaries and little by little, like there weren't enough, like there weren't living wages anymore. So you can see that it was like boiling and it wasn't sustainable anymore. Like, like the country had to change soon or else like it was going to explode. That's when Gaddafi's son came in and he set up like the Libya tomorrow plan, which is like a, a way to transfer Libya into a new modern era, which is what um, the Saudi Arabia is doing right now. But unfortunately, he um, he failed because the old guard, the Gaddafi and people, like the, the people around his father, they fought him, you know? And the son actually gave up. Like, he wasn't, he didn't believe enough in the project himself. Like, so he, he, he gave up like the two years before the revolution. And that was like that project with Gaddafi's son. It was mostly led by the Muslim brotherhood, by the way. Why is that? Because he was close to a, uh, an Imam. So, uh, okay. A quick short story. Remember mm -hmm. the Abu Slim prison? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Gaddafi wanted to release, um, the people in the prison because there were like thousands left. And they were mostly his opposition. And their families were like, hey, it's been 20 years now. Can you release our kids? And he started releasing them. But he he didn't release them easily. He he brought up 
uh, Muslim Brotherhood sheikhs and imams, and uh, and he started this rehabilitation program where jihadis were would be turned to Muslim Brotherhood or turned to be like uh, peaceful Salafi Salafis. You know, he brought sheikhs and imams from Saudi Arabia and uh, other countries to rehab rehabilitate those jihadis. And the jihadis. This sounds like a issued. terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you why. Yeah. These the jihadis actually started to write books about how they renounced their old ideas and how they now are peaceful Islamists. Which, yeah, like in 2011, those people got united and became the Islamist front against Gaddafi. Yeah, and they were connected like directly to Qatar and like other countries. But um, let's get not jump ahead of can i um like, can i ask you about yeah. 2000 um 2011 yeah um because i was studying um getting my master's in politics during that time so i was i was in the, in the thick of like you know classes during that the the arab spring and the, the you know there was an explosion there was kind of this exploding movement in in libya and then i hear Qaddafi talking about cities like Misrata and Benghazi that there are he, he's referring to the the rebels there as rats that he's going to exterminate and he's sending troops there and then Obama gives a speech where he says we're drawing a red line you, mm -hmm. there's conditions that with uh, I believe NATO that they they've established that you have to meet certain conditions if not we are going to stop you Bomb no you. boots on the ground but they would you know, there, there will there will um, be bombings uh, against the military, and there was a lot of people against the uh, the any intervention by the United States that they the mm -hmm. um, but hearing Qaddafi say speak so explicitly that he's just going to basically commit a genocide against his own people who are against him, yeah. and seeing uh, you know I saw so many images of. Libyans on rooftops with images uh, and banners and signs saying, you know, NATO, please intervene, you know, something to that yeah. effect. Yeah, yeah. You know, what, what is your take? Like what, what happened in that moment? What do you, do you, do you think the yeah. United States was right to intervene? Did it help? Was it the right thing to do at the moment? Even if it resulted later yeah. in, um, in, 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 in all the, all the, th all the aftermath, but in the moment, what, what do you think about it? Okay, in the moment. So in twenty in twenty eleven, that was the second time in five within five years, Benghazi has has started a revolution against Gaddafi. So Gaddafi was like, okay. In twenty in two thousand six, he sent a um, a delegate a delegation to uh, Benghazi like chiefs and elders and like tribe elders and telling them like, I have no issue with leveling Benghazi like. Because I'm I'm gonna destroy it in in like 24 hours. Like, if you don't stop this, I'm just gonna bomb this city to the ground. And he was like, he was showing them pictures of convoys coming to Benghazi to to wreck it. And he even it's, this is not a secret. He even had a plan, an, an emergency plan to destroy Benghazi in case anything happens. Because this is this is like something that's been happening regularly. Uh, not regularly. This is the second time, but. He had signs that this is going to happen to him eventually. Oh, oh, so you mean he had a he had a pre 
He had pre-planned yeah. the destruction of Benghazi even before the uprising, because in case this exactly. happened. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so in 2011, when that happened, he actually sent his son to say the same exact thing. Like he sent his own son to Benghazi, and his son like was like, uh, he was giving the speech where, where he said like, guys, we you either have two choices: we can invest 200 billion in the city within the next 10 years, or we can level it. Like we 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 have the we can have the power to do that. So in in February, uh, in March, in March, that's when the the Gaddafi plan he set up to destroy the city. He was actually on his way to do it and to apply it. And within the ne- within uh, the first hour, he actually entered the city uh, in. Uh, March 17th, March 19th, yeah, March 19th, it's a Saturday. He entered the city, and within the first hour, 92 people died. But, um, fortunately, the Americans interfered, and that day, that very day that they bombed and stopped him from destroying Benghazi, my, my life was on the line that day, so they literally saved millions within a day like i can i can tell you that benghazi is not like homes or um whatever like a lo- a syrian city that's under the syrian regime but rejects him uh, it would have been look like that and it would have been like terrible but yeah that day americans and the french and nato uh, the alliance yeah they did good yeah that day i'm i i actually support that that intervention of course when you say that a lot of people think that you support what happened after the intervention and the lack of anything that obama had he had no plan for libya or 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 the like arab arab uh, arab spring in general like the obama administration was taken by surprise by it unfortunately (laughs) can i um can I give you my opinion on uh, on the bad decisions in the United States? Sure. You know, you know something, uh, and you, you, I think you know quite a bit about like the air, you know, the Arab region, and all of this. I find mm-hmm. when people say, "Well, when America intervenes, things go sideways, things go bad in this region," <laughs> I, I find that from everything I, I can read, yeah, in the last, you know, the last few decades in any mm-hmm. uh, Middle Eastern country. Yeah. If if the United States does something good or bad, bad, it ends up bad. If the United States does nothing, it goes bad. If if, if there's if if it just kind of supports in name or slightly any group, it goes bad because there's there's just too much division in in but, the, these yeah, countries. Yeah, it's it's not right? their fault though. That's when I can like I'm 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 one of the people who's really hard on Libyans because I always say like. As much as we can blame, blame Gaddafi or blame the United States or blame the Saudi Arabia, we need to look at ourselves and say, why does this keep happening to us? What is what are we doing wrong? Where, where is the like the repeated bad pattern? And the United States, as like as much as people want to like make it like seem like a, an evil power, it's actually trying to do its best while they're doing it. But unfortunately. The region itself is set up for that. It, it's 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 pre, it's like it's it's 
prepared for that. It's like they can't do anything that's going to be right, Americans. They can limit the damage, but they can't do anything that's be right. There is a pattern there. Like and that's what's the same with Libyans. I always say that. I always say that Gaddafi is not a dictator who came out of nowhere. He's a reflection of our of what we want, of what Libyans want. They want a strong military man who who speaks up to the world and who's not afraid, who won't back down, and who's Islamic enough and whatever, but they got what they they hope for. And it sounds like America not... presently, except for the Islamic part. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right? It's like yeah. what uh, you you manifested that and you created him, and yeah. then he he became real. And it's like it's, I'm I'm gonna jump to 2000, 2018, and the same the same thing with happening with this current uh, military leader in Libya. Libya was in the last few years was going in a civil war. And it's a civil war. At the same time, there is a war against terrorist groups like Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. And it was like the remainder of Gaddafi's army and the people who are not Islamists and fighting the Islamists. And now that the army has won, the leader of that army, the guy who's left behind, is, is literally a Gaddafi 2.0. And people love him. People are like, we want you. And the guy was like part of the revolution a few years ago. But unfortunately, they wanted a Gaddafi 2.0 because they just want that type of personality. They don't, have, they don't have enough to say like to Islamists, we don't like your ideas, we can fight you, and we can reject your Islamic bullshit. They can't. They, they, they're too afraid, to, they're too shy to say that. They're just going to be okay with a military guy who's going to say, I'm going to kill the Islamists and I'm going to set up like a, a light Islamic state, you know, that's mm. going to satisfy you. Yeah. So after that intervention in, in 2011, that, and which subsequently led to Gaddafi going to hiding and then they caught him and then, you know, Libyan citizens killed him. And then they, they attempted to, to build a new state with not the kind of intervention that Iraq faced after the war, for example, the United States mm -hmm. was less involved. Um, what was that time like in Libya? Okay, so in 2011, during the revolution, during the middle of the revolution, Libyans started to notice that the rebels fighting in the front lines, they weren't mostly civilian rebels. They were mostly Islamic radical jihadists. They were mostly Islamists who are coming back from the United States, Libyans coming back from the United Kingdom, which now we know with the help of MI6, it's not a conspiracy anymore. They confess that they helped extremist Libyans go back to Libya to fight Gaddafi with the help of the British government. What's with these and, Western Muslims being more fundamentalist than the people in the Middle East? Yeah, so I'll, let you, so I'll tell you. I'll, yeah, so they started to come back to Libya and the Muslim Brotherhood came back to Libya and we immediately noticed that Qatar yeah. was taking over Libyan revolution. They, were, they had a Libyan channel Two Libyan TV channels. They had a, like the radio channels. They had most of the media, and they controlled the message in Libya. And Qatar was taking over, and that's when there was like a resentment towards Qatar started and the Islamists. And in 2012, uh, 2011, late 2011, like we started to tell, like not tell, like to note to NATO and like to like media that. We actually have Al-Qaeda fighters in the front lines fighting Gaddafi. And mm. we're not okay with them coming back. 
we started to notice that, but it was like, we don't know, we're not sure, whatever, and like, Americans were bombing, and NATO was helping, so we were sure that there's probably intelligence watching them, but we later learned that, yeah, they had, even uh, Americans were, like, joking about it, American pilots and UK pilots were joking about their, they were working for uh, terrorists while they were bombing Gaddafi, because they were, they knew that the people they're fighting down, they were, they were, they were jihadi. After that, after the revolution, those jihadi who came back from Canada and the United States and mostly United Kingdom, Manchester, United Kingdom, um, uh, they were getting more and more organized. At the same time, they were separating themselves, where like the Islamists who are mostly political were becoming the Muslim Brotherhood and their allies, and the jihadis were becoming the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda and Ansar Sharia, different 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 um, Islamic groups. And that's where I came in, in 2012. In 2012, I was, um, I, was, I, I was a senior in law school. I was almost graduating. And I was, I was an Islamist. You can say Muslim, not the Muslim Brotherhood. I wasn't part of the, like, the group, but I was like, ideologically aligned with them. Oh really? You were you were you were rather fundamentalist Muslim during that time? Not a fundamentalist, but I was an Islamist. You can say an, I was an, an apologist. I was like I studied uh, Quran and I studied Sharia at the same time. I studied law, mm-hmm. so I know my religion and I know what Islam was about. And not really, but I had an idea, and I was like a very like a very strong defendant of. Uh, Islamist ideas and and uh, that Al Qaeda was not like representative of what Islam is, but the Muslim Brotherhood are, and like we can have a very modern Islamic state that's a civil state, and mm-hmm. Islam is the solution, and the world needs to hear about it. And oh, I was kind of <laughs> I've always been a fan of science, of course. One of my heroes was Carl Sagan, and I was always thinking to myself like. I'm gonna meet Carl Sagan one day, like before, like I, uh, like I know he died, he died, but like I was like, I wish I could meet him one day and convert him to Islam because, like, I know that. Wait, I wait, can. you you were into science and you were a fan of Carl Sagan at the same time you were you wanted to establish like a Sharia state, not a Sharia state, a Sharia law. Like I was dependent okay. of a very staunch like of Sharia law and Sharia. How, how did you reconcile those two things? Oh yeah, there was a lot of conflict back then, but at mm. the same time, um, I've always been a nerd. I've always been to science, uh, geology, uh, like, uh, like uh, whatever. I, I'm, I've always been in, like a big fan of like cosmology, of all that, uh, science in general. And how can I say it? Like in Islam, while you're growing up there, they tell you this stuff is actually compatible with Islam. Like this stuff is like science. Islam is like tells you to go after science because Islam has its own miracles, scientific miracles. So I was like, okay, I have my back. Like, okay, I guess, uh, like, yeah, Islam is perfect. And of course, you can see the conflicts in the words and like the, the stuff and the ideas. But with the real, real word, but they like they also tell you like, if you ever see any conflict between Islam and science, know just that. Science will rectify itself and become more Islamic. 
because Islam is true and science is not. And I was like, okay, science can be like, can, it's not as clear cut as we think, so whatever. But I had a, like a lot of conflict mm-hmm. within myself. But I was like a very apologist back then. But I also had uh, a group of friends who are, I grew up with. This group of friends were part of the Boy Scout in Benghazi. And a few years before the revolution, they were actually radicalized by Al-Qaeda, uh, an Al-Qaeda uh, like a recruit of, uh, leader. He recruited like the close friends circle that I had in, in Boy Scouts. Like He recruited most of them. And I had to struggle with the fact that a lot of my friends were now jihadi. And that led to a lot of debates where like, I'm like, no, 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 Islam is not violence. And even the violent part is like very limited and like, it's not like whatever. And it's better than civil law and better than the French law. And it's like, and then they were like, Bilal, what are you talking about? You know, your religion, like you studied it. This is the stuff. And this is like how Allah said it. Are you trying to like, why are you trying to hide the truth? And I was like, okay, hold on. <laughs> In 2012, I looked at the I, I looked at the religion. I was like, ah, they're right. They're kind of right. They're saying all this stuff about violence and Islam, and, and like, they're following it correctly, and I'm not. So I was like, I have a choice. I can either be a hypocrite and say like, no, no, no. I'm not going to focus on religion now. I'm just going to focus on like promoting anti-jihadism or I can say like, I'm going to be a jihadi. Of course, that wasn't an option. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to talk about religion anymore. I'm just going to be a civil activist. I'm going to focus on my law degree and graduating and becoming a lawyer in civil law. But I'm not going to talk about Islam and Sharia anymore. And in 2012, late 2012, that's when the American ambassador was killed. But people think that's like, that was like a separate incident. But what happened was in 2012, after the revolution, and like you said, Benghazi and Libya was stable. We had, we, we had local elections. We had like a federal election, like Libyan election for the parliament and things were going, going good at the same time these jihadi groups were spreading and getting stronger and stronger and they were getting money because they were fighting, they fought against Gaddafi and the government has set up like funds for people who fought against Gaddafi, the rebels who fought against Gaddafi. So they were making money and they had weapons and they were like assassinating now. They were assassinating either um, Gaddafi era officers, they were executing people, they were and they were smart about it. They were choosing people who would, like, at first, you wouldn't be, like, you would be um, contradicting yourself. You would be like, this guy's a criminal, but he should deserve, like, a trial, like a Gaddafi-era general. But they would say, like, we just, we just handed him justice. We just killed him because Allah said so. And, like, we're not going to hurt anyone that's innocent, but we're just going to hurt someone like that. So people were like, okay, as long as it's not against me, 
I'm just going to be silent. At the very beginning, I was one of those people, but it was really quickly to me to say like, oh, these are assassinations and I'm a lawyer and I should be against that. And I'm like, you know, the lawyer in me was like, I should be more active as an activist, a civil activist. So I was more honest about jihadism and Islam and not Islam, leave that aside, about jihadism and about the growing problem in Benghazi. And I was talking to, because I was speaking English, I was talking to the media that was already in Libya or the media that was covering the 2011 revolution. And I was calling them to say, like, this is bad. Benghazi is going in a really bad direction. And they tried to assassinate the British ambassador and they tried to assassinate the Italian consul, consul and they tried to then, then they actually killed the American ambassador. And like, um, if you don't know about Chris Steven, the American ambassador and his three friends, he was the American ambassador during the, the revolution. I, I heard um, that Chris Stevens, I mean, at least the news reported that he was deeply appreciated and exactly. loved by the population. Exactly. Is that true? So so he came in 2011 during the revolution and during le- really dark times in Benghazi and Libya. And this man was, um, how can you say it? Like a really decent human being, like a very good man. And you can tell, like, he was really passionate about helping Libyans and like American, like he was the most positive example of American foreign diplomacy I, I ever seen in my life. Like I can say that with confidence. He was very friendly and very like um, hopeful. Like he had hope for Libya. Unfortunately, um, I can't. I can't specifically comment and what the policy was, but the people. Uh, that were around the American embassy that was literally gr- guarding the embassy were Islamist militias, uh, militias that were connected to the Islamist extremists I was talking about, the more jihadis, like, and they were like, they were close to the Americans at one point um, through the Muslim Brotherhood, through Libyans who came to, from Canada and the United States and whatever. These Islamists were more familiar with the American Americans than local Libyans like me, you know? So familiar in what these, way? Close, you know, close, um, I oh, can they, say. That they knew them? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they knew them. Um, at the same time, I'm not sure about how close or whether it was that policy, but I can say that the day before he, the American ambassador uh, died, a um, few people from the, the State Department were meeting with. Uh, uh, militiamen uh, people from uh, Islamist militias the people from the Islamist militias after like five four years later they were they were like not for two years later they were like part of the Ansar Sharia Al-Qaeda group the same people literally the day before he died they were meeting in the US Council building they, they, they burned and he, even literally by the end of that meeting they, uh, the militiamen turned to them and they were like, you do know that you're in danger in here, right? That people are going, are coming to kill you. And the American state uh, and the American uh, uh, consul in Benghazi sent for reinforcement and 
help from the State Department in, the, in Washington, and they didn't get that. And that was a big slip, a slip up, because one of the worst things that happened was Chris Stevens was in Benghazi during that time where there was like a series of attacks and assassinations. And he not announced, but everyone knew that the American ambassador was coming to Benghazi. Like he organized social events. He invited people. He called people and he was like, I'm coming to Benghazi on blah, blah, blah. I'm coming from Benghazi. So the word like really spread around and I really had a bad, bad feeling about it. The, the, that like that day not that day but like that visit where like i don't think foreign diplomats can go to benghazi anymore why did the the government have this lasso with, with uh with, with islamist groups like uh ansar al-sharia like what, what was the connection what did they want from them ansar sharia was not uh part of the government although they were smart about something um, Ansar Sharia set itself up outside of the government and they weren't taking any money from the government. There was just like a, an independent terrorist group. But their members, all of their members were part of the army and the government. So as individuals, they were part of the army, but as uh, but like on their spare time, they were part of Ansar Sharia and they were getting salaries from the government. Aren't those two groups completely opposite and enemies? Yeah, but yeah. So you have opposing militias. You have opposing not, military no, no, no. groups that are not the not the not the military. I'm sorry, the rebels. They call them the, the revolutionaries. The revolutionary fighters. The government has set up like two thousand dinars, like which is like fifteen hundred bucks salary, which right. is a really so, good salary. So to explain, I think what you're getting at is, from what I understand, is that you would find. Very generally, although you you could find more subdivisions maybe in Libya, but very generally you could divide up into the the military of the government, uh, Islamist militia groups, and then there mm -hmm. are civilian militia groups exactly. that that are not Islamist, but they're they they, they were very anti Qaddafi, but after Qaddafi they were more in line w with the military, tribal, like yeah, yeah, more in line and tribal and whatever. Yeah, in, in um, yeah, there's a there's a there's that Michael Hor <laughs> kind of very over the top Michael, Michael Bay. Bay movie, uh, Thirteen Ew. Hours, and and yeah. uh, if if you've seen that movie, anyone who's listening see it. it, like you can hear the soldiers talking with a group that I think they call them Seventeen Feb, and you know, they would that's the Mm -hmm. That's the exact group I was talking about. Yeah. So, so there's like, so they kind of, you can't really tell by just looking at a lot of these characters, but they, there are, there's the military, there's the, there's the civilian militias and there's Islamist groups. But you're saying like sometimes the, the people serving in those militias are oftentimes the same people. Same people. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really yeah. confusing. <laughs> that's yeah. A, and that's it's a huge like, clusterfuck. I, I can't, I can't like blame the Americans, but at the same time, I can blame them for a little bit because we were telling them. I can blame you when I tell you that, hey guys, in two in twenty twelve, I remember like I had a friend in the United Nations and I was like, Did you know that there is a new group other than Al Qaeda that's growing up in Libya? And he was like, What are you talking about? I was like, There is a terrorist group that's more extreme than Al Qaeda and that's growing up right now in Derna and he was like what are you talking about? There's nothing more extreme than Al-Qaeda. And he was like, ah, you'll see. I was talking about the Islamic State in 20, 2012. I've already seen it. I've already seen it. Like It was like 
if you go to Derna, there was like a new, like a new level of like terrorism where like, oh, there were people up in the mountain where they were like, <laughs> Al-Qaeda were like infiltrating the civilian population. These people were like, no, 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 no. We're going to separate ourselves. Like we're going to go up in the mountain or we're going to set up like an Islamic state up in the mountain. And I was like, oh shit, this is a new level. I remember that. And they were like, they made like Al-Qaeda and Ansar Sharia look like amateurs because they were like, no, 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 we're not going to talk about like reform or whatever. We're going to take over. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I I think this, this has a lot to do with the ideology of Mm -hmm. why uh, Islamic state works differently is it's not just a strategic tactic, but there's a religious reason behind them doing it that way where they separate themselves and they live in a very Islamic ways that they're, they're, they're hardcore Salafis that think that you have to live as Muhammad and you have to have an Islamic state today. Like they don't take the position of, of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood Reform, where we're yeah. going to, we're going to infiltrate and we're going to slowly infiltrate governments and groups. And, and someday we'll have an, an Islamic state in a, in a, in no, they wanted they, it now. It's, they, it's like, now. It's today. Like you, we all have to be living that right now. So they, they, they don't do this. Even the Al Qaeda way of slightly more violent, well, a lot more violent than obviously is than um, the Muslim Brotherhood, but just at flat out living, um, yeah, the Salafi life today, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And even like Al Qaeda was in 2012, they had a really big PR campaign and PR campaign in Libya where they were like. Their campaign in Libya was mainly like, uh, this is Al-Qaeda. They were like, we will never kill a Libyan. This is like their biggest advertisement in Libya. Like, even if you want to join Al-Qaeda, if you want to, like, if you want to, like, if they, because they tried to recruit me and a lot of people, but they're like the most important thing that always like made sure that people know because Al-Qaeda, they had the bad reputation of being terrorists, you know? And they're like, the biggest thing they were saying, like, we will never kill a civilian Libyan. We will never kill a Libyan. Even Gaddafi people, even those people, we don't believe that they're, they should be killed. Why? Because we believe that Libyans are Muslim and Libyans are, are religious by nature. So we will never kill a Libyan. We will never kill, like, set up a, a, a Sharia government or Sharia trial because we believe that Libya, Libyans are capable of doing it themselves. Uh, uh, Islamic State were not. We're not saying that. Our Islamic State, we're saying, like, we know that Libyans cannot make an Islamic State, and we don't trust them. And we can kill Libyan civilians if you want. So that was, like, the Al-Qaeda and the difference between Al-Qaeda and the mm. message between the Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. In 2012, Al-Qaeda was like, we're peaceful, and we will never kill Libyan. In 2014, they were like, oh, no, <laughs> we take that back. <laughs> From from what I understand, a major figure on the side of the military was uh, Khalifa Haftar. Yes. What is your yeah. opinion of him? Khalifa Haftar came in 2014 after... So I'll, I'll go back to the assassination. Mm-hmm. And after the assassination, um, they killed the U.S. ambassador. And I, my activism was, okay, now focused on two things. Talking to foreign media and to... like bringing attention to what's happening in Libya, even though we didn't need it because the international media had paid attention now what happened to Benghazi. But I was like trying to focus the narrative where like, first of all, 
the I don't want to I don't want to cause controversy. The biggest <laughs> biggest lie was the biggest fake news lie was that, that was about the movie. It was it was a protest against the movie, and it was a big controversy that the Obama administration said it was a protest against the movie that's on YouTube against Prophet Muhammad. While we all know in Benghazi and like within the Obama administration, within the first day, they knew that this was an assassination. This was a terrorist attack set up to kill the American ambassador and not a protest that went out of hand, you know? So the, the narrative, I was like, let's, first of all, let's, control, let's, 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 let's tell the truth. Like, it's not a, like a protest. It's not whatever. It's like a real terrorist attack. But unfortunately, I was seeing like Susan Rice which is working with Obama administration, lying on TV and saying it was like a protest against the movie. And I was like, I'm living in Benghazi. I literally saw the people attacking. They're not attacking for the movie. They don't know the movie, you know? <sighs> and the following week, my friends and I, the people who were like active in setting up like protests against jihadi groups were like, okay, now we have, like an international incident and the whole media is looking at us. Let's do something and talk about this in Libya and Benghazi. So it was a real big issue. So I, I was, I had two tasks to talk to the media. And the second thing is to go to the university, my law school and take all the pressures and convince every student that I face this week that they, they must show up for the protest. And that's when I had a, like, a life-changing experience because I just graduated from law and I had to convince like hundreds of people that terrorism doesn't represent Islam or terrorism is wrong. And I was shocked by people like, like we were debating and I was like, you know that killing civilians is wrong. And they were like, okay, killing civilians is wrong, but what if they're infidels? And I'm like, it's wrong too. They're like, but what about 9-11? And I was like, it's wrong. I had to convince people, like hundreds of people, that 9-11 was a terrorist attack and it was wrong and that killing the American ambassador is also wrong. And I didn't know my people. It, it was like a, like a shocking day to me that I didn't know how many people were like with that stuff. Oh, you with, mean you couldn't it. recognize your own people? Like they, they, I couldn't, you were shocked like, by yeah, how they I couldn't were talking. Recognize, yeah, mm. but because like a lot of them were like justifying what's going on, especially Islamic terrorism. And I was like, wow, I mm. knew that my friends were like, okay, but I didn't know that the population had this, this is a university. This like, these should be like 20 year olds, 22 year olds, you know, 19 year olds, 18 year olds. No, they were like brainwashed with a lot of jihadi ideas. And I had to like, we have a systematic problem. I remember that day, I was like, I can't live here. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, I, it's impossible for me to be, I can't. It's a, so, at the same time, uh, I had to set it aside. I was like, I had to focus on my mission. I had to like bring as many people as possible. So, in that day, in the protest day, it was uh, on, uh, yeah, 22 Mar uh, September 22 2012 uh, I I my friends and I started the protest and like 50,000 people showed up it was a massive protest and we got it covered by CNN and international media and 
they were talking about it and and uh, that same day civilians burned the is Ansar Sharia headquarters and they they attacked uh, an Islamist militia headquarter so it looked like things were going to be awesome like following that day but in that same day that same day um, in Benghazi the head of the government which was a Libyan American who came back from the America, America and he was an Islamist and he literally just came back from Amer the United States like to, to pay condolences for Chris Steven and he he came back to Libya and he said like the Islamist militia you are attacking right now is a legitimate militia. It's under the government. And the people who are attacking this militia have a an agenda and they're pro-Gaddafi and and I give authorization for this militia to protect itself. And this militia killed that day twelve innocent people. And that Amer Libyan American politician, a year later he left and he never came back to Libya. And most of his Islamist uh, colleagues are are still like in, in power in Libya and still controlling a lot of Libya in Libya. And his son is still running the central bank in Libya, like the, till this day. Like this Islamist is his son is still running the, like the Libyan central bank, and it's a very messy situation with this group. It's called the the Libyan National Salva Salvation uh, Front. The front, yeah, of national salvation, Libya national, yeah, and uh, he gave legitimacy to terrorist groups. We know that these people were gonna be terrorists, and two late, two years later, they actually joined like with Al Qaeda and, and Islamic State. I'll, and I'll get to that point. So in 2013, it was a balance between the army, which got like popular support, and it was like Islamic militia had the government support, and the money. And at one time, the government actually gave $1 billion to the to the, one of the extremist militias like, as a, like, a, a severance payment to the fighters who didn't get paid for that year. Like, they literally gave them a lot of money and gave them a lot of like, positions in the, in the government. Uh, in 2014... People have had enough. Like in 2013, there was a record number of assassinations. In 2014, the assassinations continue. But the army, now led by Khalifa Haftar, the guy, Khalifa Haftar, the guy you just mentioned, mm -hmm. he led the army against the Islamists. And in 2012, he was aligned with the Islamists. But in 2014, he was like, this is, they're going to come for me. They're going to kill me. So I better like set up an, a plan. And he did. He actually like did something miraculous. With the little army that's left in Benghazi from Gaddafi and the special forces and whoever want to fight and volunteer, they actually defeated Al-Qaeda, Al-Sar Sharia, and Islamic State in the same time. Like, But that came at a really high cost of a war that continued for almost three years and will, and basically destroyed half the city. Like, put it, like, leveled half the city and, like, but at the same time, like the the popular support for Hefter is I can't deny it I'm I'm against him but because in 2015 2016 the Hefter people were now taking 
hostages from the Islamic State and they were executing them Islamic State style. They were actually having the Islamic State fighters wearing orange and they were executing them from the back with guns and whatever. And I was like, this can't work this way. You have to have a trial. You have to have like a, like a fair civilian government. You can't be against the Islamic State and terrorism and do the exact same thing. And unfortunately, Hefter has been following the same Gaddafi model. And he's supported by foreign governments like United United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, unfortunately. And they fund him with billions. And some of his people are committing crimes against humanity. And now they're wanted by the International Criminal Court, actually. Because they actually committed crimes against humanity. Unfortunately, a lot of the secular activists fell in the trap where a lot of like Egyptians fell, where they supported the army because they were so desperate to fight the Islamists. They supported the army and they supported the oppressive measures that the army t- t- took after. And they didn't stand in the way. I remember in 2015, I started to say, like, how come you're burning the houses of terrorists? Like, their family didn't do anything, you know? The, the people would, like, if your son was suspected in a terrorist attack or assassination and they're fighting with Hefter or whatever, they would come and they would take his family out and they would burn their house and they would tell them, like, never come back here, you know? So the reaction was extreme to the other side. And I was like, but now you're creating even more terrorists and even more radicalized children and, and people. And, like, how can we say, like, we're better than those people and fighting them? while we're doing the same exact crimes, you know? So that's why I'm against Hefter. Where if you have a principle, you have to stick to it. Mm. How did so, you yeah. um, end up leaving Libya? Can you talk about that? Uh, it's, it's not a, like a, an escape story or whatever. Mm-hmm. I uh, In 2014, I come to the realization where I... <sighs> there is a lot of like, subconscious stuff in my head that were going on where like one of them were like a message where like you have to get out of here you can't you can't like continue here and because what were the I was main talking, reasons in your head going on there yeah i kind of wanted to know <laughs> one of them uh, i was talking to the media and i was talking to um about what's going on in libya and about the terrorist group and what terrorism or whatever and like i said most of the Islamists are Libyan Americans and Libyan Canadians and Libyan English, British. And they started to pick up on my articles and my uh, views and my, uh, and my social media activity. And they started to report it back to Libyans in Derna and in Benghazi. And they were like, get rid of this guy. He's talking about you. And luckily for me, my mom was from Derna and a lot of my relatives in Derna <laughs> Even though they were extremists, they're they're also human beings, and they like they care about their relatives. And they were like calling me, and they were like, "Hey, did you know that your name is a, is on this assassination list? You're now a target. Like, we can we can stop it for so long, but we can stop it. We can't stop it forever. You need to stop talking, or you need to get out. You know." And these people were people like who are actually extremists, but yeah, they were friendly enough to tell me like, "You need to leave." And I was getting like personal threats uh, by that by then, and uh, from Islamists, from like I was, I don't know, 
I was probably dealing with a lot of like PTSD. But like one time I, I went to the like Ansar Sharia headquarters myself. Like I went to it and I started arguing with them. Why are they here? Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> man, the, and I was ball, the balls it. you have, man. I, and I was uh, live tweeting it, actually. I was live tweeting, live tweeting it. Going to Ansar al-Sharia. <laughs> yeah. And, and, why are you and, just, here? and why? just arguing with them. Yeah, arguing okay. with them. What and were you saying like, to them? I, I was like, why are you kidnapping people? Because They were telling me because they drink alcohol. And I'm like, you can't kidnap people. You're not with the government. And they're like, yeah, but Allah said so. And Allah, like, aren't you a Muslim? And I'm like, back then I was like, yeah, but you can't force stuff on people. And they were like, we can. And I'm like, ah, okay. Uh, I tried, like, I tried to be, like, really nice. I tried to justify them. I tried to be, like, there are some good people in Ansar Sharia, but there are bad people there. I tried to, like, be friendly. I tried to, like, I tried to do anything, you know. I, I'm, I'm, I was desperate to, to like understand what's going on, you know. Like, I remember like the the, the time, up until like 2011, I was a conspiracy theorist that like I had my doubts about 9/11 and what happened that day, and I was like one of those people who were watching the videos. Look at that man! There's demolition there, man! And I was like, but in 2011, I remember like meaning like. And Derna and like people were like, bro, we were at Afghanistan then. We were happy and like we actually were like knew about this stuff. Like, what are you talking about? Are you serious? Are you gonna take credit from us and say the American government did it? I'm like, okay, okay. So it is real, (laughs) you know. So that's one of the things. Like, um, uh, yeah, I've seen that happen before. Um. Uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was giving a a speech at the United Nations and he was talking, you know, conspiracy theories about Uh 9-11 and how the Jews weren't in the buildings and et cetera, et cetera. And and, um, I think it was the next day, Al-Qaeda was giving all kinds of declarations (laughs) on on YouTube, you know, denouncing uh, Ahmadinejad is like, you you know, no, we did it. Why are you taking credit from us and giving it to, to other Americans? Like... They they didn't want that. They didn't like that. Uh, that conspiracy theory. Exactly. It take, it take away the their their response their their glory of of that for, from it. So I remember that. Like yeah. I had the same exact thing. I was like, "Are you serious? Like you, you support this stuff?" And they were like, "Yeah, bro. We were like in Darna and we were in Afghanistan, and we were like some of them were like working with Bin Laden. We like we know a lot of people in Darna that were like connected to like the, the terrorist groups in Afghanistan." So I was like, oh, okay, it's real. Mm. So that was in 2011. But yeah. And uh, and then from there, sorry, like, where um, was I? Uh, leaving to. Leaving yeah. So the, and, yeah. in 2014, mm-hmm. I, I, I had planned to leave to um, Europe, not on a boat, but yeah, I had a visa. But yeah, I was planning on to leave to Europe. But I got a chance to uh, come to Canada. And at first, I was planning on like staying for a few months. And then while I was here, um, one of my closest friends um, got killed, an, an activist who was part of the, the, the protest that I told you about following the killing the American ambassador. But he was a lot more active than me, and he was a lot more famous than me in public. And uh, 
yeah, he got killed in 2014. And a colleague of mine, a fellow, a fellow lawyer, she got killed as well, a prominent lawyer, a human rights activist, while I was in Canada. So it was like, now they're done with the uh, military, with the army. And now they're at the point where they're killing like straight up women, children, because the guy who I told you about was 18 years old. He was just barely got 18 years old. And the woman I told you about is 46-year-old lawyer. So she's not a threat. So they started to kill like civilians, activists. And I was like, I, can't, I have to stay here. So I applied here and I got my status here. And yeah. Can I, um, God, there's, there's so much, I, I'd like to talk to you another like two hours about just religion, but I think yeah. it would be better if we just do a different podcast for that. Um, but I would like to ask you because I still hear to this day from comment, like political commenters who lean very left, very anti-American in many cases, um, and they're very, especially anti-American intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, to this day, I'm still seeing them use Libya as an example, added on mm-hmm. with Iraq and, and the invasion of Iraq to say, well, look what happened after the, the United States intervened and took out Gaddafi and Gaddafi was a, a you know, he might've been bad, but he was a secular leader. And, and, uh, and, and yes, you know, he was going to, to uh, attack uh, these cities and kill the rebels. But, you know, now then it was taken over by ISIS and the situation is worse. What would you say to that, to that general message? What your, would your response be to any of these people making that comment? <sighs> to be honest, um, I've, I've been talking to liberals and left, and right wing because we have a lot of right wing focus on Libya and Benghazi. For some reason, right wingers love Benghazi and conservatives because they talk about the controversy. So they learned actually about what happened in the in the intervention. So we have both like left leaning and right uh, and right leaning conservatives who are like, look at what happened in Libya. Look at what's going on in Libya. Well, I don't talk to them. I honestly don't don't send them a message anymore. I talk to my own people in Libya. I focus on on the people who can save things and who can make things better because I truly believe America cannot make things better in Libya. Mm-hmm. America can make it worse with whatever they can do, whatever, like they can mess up, but they cannot make things better. Only Libyans can do that. And so to them, I can say, like, give us enough respect to let us solve our own issues and bullshit. Don't stick up for us. Let Libyans... Let Libyans take responsibility of what's going on in Libya. That's what I would say to them. Don't mm-hmm. um, Libyans, Iraqis, they don't deserve what's going on to them, but they take res- they should take responsibility of what's going on to them, not mm-hmm. as individuals, as a group, but also as individuals. And that's what also I always say about Libya. We have a small Gaddafi living inside each and every one of us. Seculars, Islamists, whoever, people want to silence their critics with violence and with, with military means and with whatever they can do. But they, they, they don't want to talk. And to them, like, I want to say, like, Libyans, they need to learn how to talk. They need to learn how to, to criticize bad ideas, including religious ideas and cultural ideas, and talk about 
our history about like for example in libya we we cannot talk about omar Mukhtar. we cannot say that he was an islamist and we he was a jihadi and we have a we have like a little bit of criticism because he's still on the on the on the currency and he's considered the number one national hero the symbol of libya and being a libyan and mm-hmm. till this day when terrorists libyan terrorists kill each other kill kill themselves or bomb bomb themselves they say like we're doing this for that to to tribute for omar Mukhtar, our grand our grandfather the guy who gave us this uh, this legacy we need to carry it on and i'm like okay how about we confront this legacy and talk about it honestly but Americans or liberals or conservative and uh, conservatives in America. I, I, something that so, somebody never told them. I don't care what you think. I don't care what they mm-hmm. think. I don't care what they've. Uh, at 2012, I was at 2016. I was angry enough to say like, "Don't vote for Hillary." She was the State Department like uh, uh, secretary of the State Department while Benghazi attack happened. So she's not competent or whatever. But I was like, but what other choice do they have? They have Trump. That's not a choice. That's like, like they're both as, like as bad as it, like each other. So I, whoever they choose is is, is like just gonna be bad. So I'm, I I don't care what they think anymore. If you're somebody who cares about Libyans, give them enough respect and Iraqis. Give them enough to respect to to take responsibility of to take what's happening to their country. Don't take that away from them. Make them. Take responsibility. Don't say like America ruined your country. Like we ruined it too. Like don't take our credit in what mm. happened and Gaddafi's credit or or Libya's legacy. It's a it's a horrible thing that happened and Libyans need to to be to share yeah. responsibility for it. Yeah. So I, I hear a similar thing when I hear about Chile and the golpe de estado, the the coup by Pinochet uh, over Salvador Allende. And I, you know, when every every year when the when the topic pops up again because they kind of circumvent nine eleven, it happening in the United States with nine eleven Chile because the coup happened on also September eleventh, and mm-hmm. and I constantly here in the United States see these little, you know, from left wing uh, websites and news agencies they'll always paint it like America did it completely taking yeah. all responsibility away from from Chileans. And yes, the United the United States was definitely involved. That's not a conspiracy theory. It's it's a conspiracy reality. Fact. It, it, it completely mm. is true and happened, but it doesn't take away the fact like that, that was a real division between between exactly. uh, communists and and capitalists in the country and different political parties and Ch- Chileans were the ones who did it. There wasn't any American soldiers. They didn't invade this country. And so, yeah, yeah I, I, I completely see uh, that. I get that same kind of sensation that I think you're talking about now where y- you can't take complete like we're not we're not auton- automatons. We're, we're not robots that just do whatever Americans, the American imperialists tell us like we have our own problems. We have our own divisions and we make our own decisions and we make bad yeah. decisions often. Um, but do, do you speak going back to Libya? Do you think I'm naive if I think that I'm actually despite all the divisions and all the violence you told me going back to the time of the nineties that you were talking about, where you said there was just, there was no connection. There was no Pepsi Cola. There was no, uh, you know, it, the political understanding was reduced to the green book that Gaddafi had written. Do you think I'm naive mm-hmm. in thinking 
I'm still optimistic because even your generation grew up so isolated, but when there's so much potential to open up, there's resources that you just need the spark of modernity and information and the idea of civil rights. Do, do you think there, there's actually a lot of hope in that, that just the opening up to the world uh, can, can create change? By nature, I'm an optimist. Yeah. Unfortunately, when it comes to Libya, I'm not. Um, Do you think it just I, take a, a big, really long time? What I'm talking about. I'm a big fan of Sam Harris, mm-hmm. and uh, one of one of the things Sam Harris said that you can develop a nuclear bomb without looking at your religion. That you're looking at like you can go in that path of science, where you can go all the way to to developing a nuclear bomb, or or like even have it like a research about evolution and not lose your religion because that's how strong religion is in libya we have such a strong deep rooted religious culture that nothing i i have, I have this pinned as my arabic tweet but i have, i have like you can see it nothing women's right elections reconciliation economic reform Nothing, nothing can help Libya until they can honestly speak about the main pro- issue in Libya: religion, which is religion and culture. Like I can say culture as well. Like there, we have, we have cultural issues that unrelated to religion. Where I can say like this is the Libyan unrelated to Islam, but we have a real issue with with theology in Libya. We have, with with being people people like the population being an islamic population and a hypocritical population because they would vote for an islamic state but they wouldn't want to be living in one which is like a very huge issue and the and the biggest problem is you can't talk about it if i go back and say this stuff this stuff i would be killed by not just by by, by terrorists by pop by normal civilians by my own not family, but my own people, like my own close circle would kill me, would literally kill me. If I say, like, let's talk honestly about religion, let's, let's criticize it, let's criticize bad ideas, and I don't want it to be enforced. I don't want it to be in the law. I don't want it to be mentioned. I don't want it, I don't want it in my life. And when people say, like, do you, do you want a secular state? And I go, yeah, that's, that's a death sentence. So as long as, as, this is a, remains a death sentence for people like me. There will never be a, a, uh, a peaceful transition to a modern civil state in Libya. There will never be that. Like, unfortunately, I, it's, not be, me, it's me being realistic. As long as we cannot criticize bad ideas, we will never move forward in Libya. And, and so far, it, it, you cannot. It's really amazing. You just almost said a phrase almost verbatim of a previous guest, Mohammed Al-Qadra. He's from Jordan. He was also very fundamentalist at a time and now not. He said the exact same thing you just said, that Jordanians would all vote to live in an Islamic state, but don't want to live in one. Yeah. And, and you just said that about thing. Libya. That, that's, that's, that's very interesting that you guys pretty much said the exact same thing about your countries. There's, yeah, there's, and there's that's a lot a to talk thing. about there. Yeah, that's a common thing in Libya that Libyans would go to for treatment or or uh, for uh, tourism to Tunisia. 
which is next to Libya, but they wouldn't have a, a spa set up in Libya. They wouldn't take it. They wouldn't allow women to wear bikini in Libya, but Libyan women would go to wear bikini in Tunisia. It's a very, uh, it's a very strange dichotomy in Libya, but at the same time, it's like, you cannot talk about it, honestly. You cannot set up a TV show or a radio show or a popular internet YouTube channel and go with your face and talk about this stuff. Like, last year, um, during Ramadan, I tweeted a joke about um, buying a new telescope. And I said, I bought a new telescope. And... I'm gonna use it to uh, to look for cosm uh, for for like the moon and and uh, and Jupiter, but I'm not gonna use it for Islamic uh, w observing of the of the moon of the Hilal of the Ramadan. That tweet was screenshotted, and people said like this is the one number one number two trending uh, uh, hashtag in Libya. Bilal is an atheist outing me as an atheist, attacking my family, threatening my life. And, and all because I said I bought a telescope and I'm not going to use it for religious purposes. That's literally it. Literally it. And that got me. Like, If I was in Libya, I would probably been dead for that. Because people were like, who is this guy? Where can we find him? And how can we kill him? Because he said that. Another time, like they take another screenshot and they would just like, Every single day, every every single time, like I get death threats constantly online. Not just death threats, but just like threats where like, where are you? Where can we find you in Libya and kill you right now? Like, are you in Libya? Are you serious? Like, that's how they talk to me. Like, how dare you talk like that? Like, you're a Libyan. You're a Muslim. Talk talk in a, in a Muslim way. Like, I'm not. Don't tell me what to say. But yeah. It's one of those like things where like if I can't say that, if I can't criticize them openly, how can I how can I do anything? How can I how can you expect any reform or anything that can, can happen? Because even the Hefter people are threatening me as well. Like, hey, don't talk about Hefter. Like I'm getting threats in Libya to don't talk about Hefter. Like that's how bad it is. Mm. Yeah. I I I mean, we've almost been speaking for two hours. I want to ask you a million things about religion. Um, let's let's talk again. It's it's been sure. amazing. It's been great to talk to you. Um, it, Libya is is a small country, but it's very significant. I think politically and and it's is it's a country that that um, stands out stands out a lot for for its history and its people. Yeah, um, it does. Uh, but thank you for being on again, man. Thank you for having me.